I think the key issue for transport infrastructure at the moment is one of governance. It's one of who is making decisions, who's setting priorities, um, who's sitting at the table, and who's being excluded from that table. Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers, and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. Anyone who travels to work will probably realise that Australia's transport infrastructure needs urgent upgrading. Congested roads, overcrowded trains and buses and insufficient bike path networks are common problems in many of our cities. But with governments focused on reducing deficits, the chances are that only one or two significant infrastructure projects will be funded in each city. So how are the infrastructure decisions made? Which projects should we prioritise? And does a city need more roads or rail, or something else entirely? And how much say do the people who actually use these transport systems have? I spoke with Crystal Legacy about the politics of Australian transport infrastructure funding and the role that community participation in urban planning can play in democratising the funding and implementation of projects. The state of play of transport infrastructure in Australia is that there is an urgent need to build more transport infrastructure. Obviously, cities are growing, um, they're expanding, and the population is, is certainly rising. Population is booming. Sydney, for instance, is set to top 5 million people next year, but it won't be the biggest city for long. Apparently, Melbourne will become the largest city in Australia from 2056 in terms of population. The question is, what kind of infrastructure should we be investing in? And that's a debate that we've seen certainly in Sydney and Melbourne, but also in Perth and other cities around Australia. Often it gets framed as roads versus rail, but I'd like to encourage others to think about it in terms of, well, economic infrastructure versus social infrastructure. We tend to focus on the economic outcomes and benefits of infrastructure, um, transport infrastructure, and we don't always think carefully and clearly about the social benefits as well. So this idea that infrastructure is an economic benefit is, is quite narrow, and it often channels our focus into job creation, um, which is certainly important, absolutely. But we don't always think about what are the other areas that we should be prioritizing in value as well. So in addition to just investing in a project to create jobs, should we also be thinking about uh, how can we make that infrastructure work for us in, in other ways? And, and that's where planning plays a, a, huge, a huge role. And there's often a disconnect between infrastructure, uh, delivery and implementation and planning and land use and strategic planning. The disconnect between the planning process and the actual delivery of infrastructure partly comes from the politicisation of transport infrastructure projects, says Crystal. With limited funding available for transport infrastructure, governments tend to focus on one major transport project, such as the East-West Link in Melbourne or West Connects in Sydney. And then the choice about which project to implement becomes a political choice and the decision-making process is often moved into the political sphere. 
I think we need to think about, in terms of the social benefits of infrastructure, we need to think about it in terms of accessibility. Infrastructure for who? where and when, um, that's a question of priorities. And often those priorities are set, sometimes in the strategic planning process, but we see priorities set in terms of, you know, these are the five key projects that we want to invest in over the next 10, 20, 30 years. But as we know, funding is limited. And so usually we need to invest in only one big piece of urban transport infrastructure. And that's where the question becomes a political one and the political process, the politics of, of making those decisions are often subverted and moved elsewhere. And that's where you get a lot of community opposition to projects like the West Connects project and in Melbourne uh, last year, certainly the East West Link. It's terrific to be here at the M5 Control Centre with Premier O'Farrell. It is a pleasure to be here at Vic Roads. It's uh, great to be with Premier Dennis Snapthine. And if our national economy is to flourish, people have got to be able to move around Melbourne properly. Uh, that's why the Federal Coalition has committed $1.5 billion towards this vital piece of national infrastructure. The Coalition's commitment to immediately provide $1.5 billion to the State Government for the WestConnex project. The East-West Link project in Melbourne was proposed in 2008 as part of the East-West Needs Assessment, which was um, led by Sir Rod Eddington. And that project wasn't necessarily given the top priority, but it was part of a suite of projects that could enable or better improve the connectivity between the East and Western parts of metropolitan Melbourne. This evening, Victoria's Premier John Brumby has conceded defeat, paving the way for Liberal leader Ted Bailey to become the state's 46th Premier. We got a change of government in 2010. Um, at that point in time, there was a lot of interest in building public transport. But as the government settled in and we saw the East-West link trickle up to the surface as the number one state priority. And on top of that, the cost benefit analysis and the business case were quite opaque. And, and it wasn't clear to others in the community who are thinking about transport, whether or not that, was, that should be the top priority. And the government was really keen on pushing the contract signing through before the state election in 2014. And as you can imagine, that raised some eyebrows around the democratic process and in the way in which the communities, other stakeholder groups should be engaging with transport infrastructure decision making. The Premier has rushed through the signing of contracts for the $8 billion East-West Link after a day of drama that saw the High Court throw out a legal challenge to the project. And the project can expect more protests. They can expect pickets, protests, all sorts of civil disobedience. The community backlash was, was really interesting. It wasn't just those who were going to be immediately affected or directly affected by the project that were in opposition. There were others in other parts of Melbourne who were concerned about the government setting this project as the top priority, but also the manner in which they were pushing it through clearly demonstrated that they were underpinning this project some political uh, motivations. Strategic urban planning involves a process of identifying the long-term vision for a city or urban environment. And it usually allows for engagement with the local community about the type of infrastructure they need or they would like to see built. But in Australia, the process of prioritising projects can take place from outside of the strategic planning sphere. Instead of planners or local communities making these strategic decisions, the question about which projects to prioritise is sometimes made by politicians. 
And because the decisions and reasons why certain projects are chosen remain somewhat opaque, there's the potential for community dissatisfaction and frustration. Well, the manner in which we prioritise transport projects in Australia, from, what, from my understanding and based on my research, is it occurs often outside of the strategic planning process. Strategic planning will occur at the state level and usually it's a conversation about what kind of projects the community would like to see built and prioritised over the next 30 years. But the question of what is the top priority is not something that is put to a public discussion. And so those priorities... Well, that decision is often made outside of the strategic planning process, and it usually involves people in Treasury, politicians, who will make a decision based on sort of a, a political mandate that they may have been elected on. But as we saw in Victoria, that's not necessarily the case either. And you like to think that those decisions are being made based on good economic analysis and modelling. But as we saw also in Victoria, that that's not always true either. So there are these underpinning political motivations, which are unclear and opaque. And that, that's where the prioritization question becomes of concern within the community. So who is making the decisions? Well, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> um, and I guess the research that I'm interested in, in conducting is explores, well, what does governance of infrastructure planning look like outside of the strategic planning process? How does that include the community? How does that include politicians? How does that include the national government, which plays a significant role, and the state government as well as local government? So there's, it's a quite a complex question. It's not, there isn't a clear answer. The lack of transparency in decision-making processes is further complicated by the increasing use of public-private partnerships to deliver infrastructure projects. The public are usually prevented, at least early on, from seeing the details of projects, supposedly for commercial inconfidence reasons. Crystal Legacy says that this is just one example of the tensions between the various groups involved in transport infrastructure projects. There are certainly questions being raised around the governance of transport planning and implementation, and often the concerns are directed at the transparency of those decisions. And with the rise of public-private partnerships, there's often an interest or, or perhaps an expectation by the private sector that those decisions uh, early on are not necessarily public for commercial and confidence reasons. The state government is being accused of keeping the public in the dark about its plans to revitalise Parramatta Road. The state opposition says a community information campaign has been scrapped without explanation. Some residents are worried they're being shut out. And so you've really got a huge tension between the market and the private sector and their motivations and expectations of the government in terms of conducting a tender process, for instance, around a big mega urban transport project versus the community's expectation of transparency, accountability, and just generally being part of a conversation about the future of their city. Now, governments tend to feel as though they are providing ample amount of opportunities for the community to be part of those conversations during strategic planning. Um, and at that point in time, those processes of 
engagement and consultation are closed down. Not necessarily entirely, but community engagement shifts in terms of its focus to that of providing a submission to a public hearing or third-party appeal rights. And that's a different kind of way in which the community engages. And it's very narrow and it's very limiting because uh, sometimes at that point, the conversation is not necessarily about how should we prioritize transport planning, but that this project is going to move forward. How can we ensure that we minimize the impact on you, the community? There's also generally an interest in output-oriented planning. We know based on reports that come out yearly that there's an infrastructure deficit. Hospitals, schools, and certainly public transport, particularly serving those who live on the, on the edges of our cities, our expanding cities. So a lot of attention is, is focused on, we need to get on with the business of planning. But we often forget that planning is a political process and it needs to be democratic, and that's that's a that's a word that is difficult to use as well. Because what is democracy in planning? And you know, is that putting together a group of citizens on a citizens' jury making a decision, or is it about greater transparency, or is it about so many other things? It's a bit unclear. Um, so there's a real tension in planning. It's not an easy tension to resolve. In fact, we'd call it a wicked problem. But I think we have to be committed both citizens, active citizens, politicians, uh, and planners need to be committed to this idea that planning should be democratic and, and currently constantly rethinking and redefining what that might be as the context shifts. Engaging with the community can be problematic for planners and politicians. But Crystal says this doesn't mean that they need to relinquish their leadership roles within transport infrastructure projects. But planners and politicians need to be willing to listen to the community. They need to provide an appropriate forum for community input into projects where the public can express their support or concerns. I don't know what a better community engagement process looks like. I think engagement with the community is, is very political, it's very messy. There are certainly strong interest groups in the community that want to protect their, their patches, they say, protect their property values, protect their community from changing. Um, and then there are others, like long-standing public transport organizations, which are trying to advocate for a different vision of the transport system in, in cities, one that is more social and more equitable. More equitable for who and, and, you know, how do you distribute and how do you ensure that people have access to jobs and services is, you know, those are very political questions. So there are always going to be trade-offs, winners and losers. This is a typical morning at Melbourne's worst congestion hotspot. This congestion is costing Melbourne and Victoria millions of dollars each year. The cost-benefit analysis that was done by the Victorian government for this toll road project showed a benefit of 0.45. What that means is 45 cents of benefit for every dollar that's invested. That is a shocker of a project. I think the, the general public will choose for themselves how they would like to be engaged in decisions. Sometimes the decision can be really clear. This is not to detract from this idea that politicians need to provide leadership. Uh, leadership is critically important as well. But when a politician drives a project forward, there will be some that will not 
feel that this is the best project to move forward with and others will be more favorable. And so the role of the public is to have a go and to offer, as we saw with the East West Link, the community debate against that project was incredibly sophisticated. And they were drawing on case studies from cities around the world looking at the economic benefits of public transport over road infrastructure. Um, you know, they were coming armed and equipped to have a political, but in a very intelligent and well-informed conversation with the political process and with politicians and with senior state bureaucrats. The question for me is to what extent are politicians and senior state bureaucrats willing to have that conversation with the community? And what are the spaces that enable those conversations to occur and at what point? So we often when we talk about quote unquote good practice, community engagement is something that is ongoing. But the, the criticism of that is, well, we can keep engaging the community till the cows come home and how does that change the outcome sometimes and sometimes it doesn't but again it's not necessarily about holding a public meeting every Saturday. Government is arrogantly pushing ahead with the West Connects without a business case, without an environmental impact assessment. No business case has yet been put to the public about West Connects. I think one of the things that I'd like to see changed is the way active and passionate citizens are portrayed and perceived by the planning process and planning institution. We tend to brand them as NIMBYs. NIMBYs is an acronym that stands for Not In My Backyard. And it's often used as a negative term to describe community groups who oppose projects that are close to where they live. I think if we can move beyond that and put less focus on the no's and more on the what's and the, the possibilities uh, rather than just the no's because I think when the communities do oppose projects and you see that all the time as being one of the, the greatest challenges that planners are faced with is oppositional groups. But if we are willing to listen to them carefully and then ask the right kind of questions, we'll see that they are open to different and other ways of, of building and constructing cities or a different future for the city, which may challenge traditional views of, of urban planning. Um, and that's probably the hardest bit. In an ideal, perhaps even utopian scenario, strategic planning and community engagement will lead to better transport infrastructure outcomes. But what exactly is better transport infrastructure? And who is it better for? There's a number of factors to consider here, including the often cited when, where, how and why of project implementation. Crystal Legacy says it's important to frame the question about what is better transport infrastructure from the public's perspective. And this means we need to move beyond looking at infrastructure projects in purely economic terms. When we are concerned about job losses, we're concerned about the loss of our manufacturing sector. It's, it's very hard to shift our focus away from using infrastructure as a mode of creating jobs. And politicians, as we can see with um, budgets that have come down over the last few years, that is their primary focus. One of the things I'd, I'm interested in with my research is how can we reframe and think about infrastructure in a more broader way, in a broader uh, that moves us beyond just um, the economic focus. And certainly there is a lot of commentary by 
others in the field, my colleagues who are doing research on infrastructure, who are advocating and showing through evidence and case studies from around the world that infrastructure should, had, certainly has a social and environmental dimension. But the political connection is, is an important one. Better transport infrastructure doesn't necessarily mean it has to be public transport. I feel uncomfortable saying that because I think uh, I think we should um, refocus our attention onto um, public transport for for good reason. Cities around the world are not building roads. You know, they're building public transport, and and there's environmental reasons why that is a good idea, social reasons. But better transport infrastructure, that question needs to be framed and raised in a public way. You know, what is good public transport infrastructure is is probably the the way in which I'd approach that question. And what is public transport infrastructure? Again, doesn't necessarily have to be public transport per se. It could be cycling, it could be active transport, walking, and it could just be better utilization of car share programs. Or it could also just be a different way of setting up our our highway and freeway systems so that our focus isn't predominantly just on highways and freeways, but better connected network of transport modes. Until we have a really serious and honest discussion about what are we building transport for, I think the question of how do we build better public transport won't necessarily get a look in, at least an honest, genuine look in. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. And if you like this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a review or comment through iTunes. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.